Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Thank you for joining us once again. And before we start, we're going to say a huge hello and thank you to our newest Patreon supporters. This time I'm doing the honours. So we have Josephine Robinson, Monica McAvoy, John Paul George, Katie Rule, Nissa Clark Bellert, Brittany Swift, Justine Woodford, Elizabeth Bryant, Sarah Sullivan and Lisa Pennington. Thank you to each and every one of you and of course a huge thanks to our existing patron supporters too. If you want to join these guys, over a thousand people have signed up since we started Seeing Red. All you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. This week we are going to be looking at a murder from 1994 but we'll begin today in July 2018 and our episode starts with a prison escape. It was like something out of a film. There was a car waiting around the corner in a car park. It was stocked with guns and at HMP shots, whilst some prisoners began their outdoor exercise, one man was preparing to make his escape. So HMP shots is a high security prison in Scotland. It's situated in countryside south of the M8 motorway near to the Lanarkshire village of shots. I wanted to ask you, Mark, I don't know. So if a prison was built when it was Her Majesty's Pleasure, or like Her Majesty's Prison, do we still now say Her Majesty's because it was built then, or do we say His Majesty's Prison? I I reckon because it's like an ongoing thing, I reckon it'd be His Majesty's Pleasure. Mm. I always find it really interesting we're in this bit of history now. Like you had a case recently and you you said Casey, and I was like, oh, yeah, King. Like it's so fascinating to me. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Everything changing over and it's all we've known for all of our lives and whatever age you are, most of your life. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask at this point, actually, have you got, do you know of any prisons that are near to where you live, Bethan? No, there's not really any particularly close to me. Whereas I know, obviously, we've talked before that you used to live quite close to one. Well, I lived really close to one in Bristol, which was Mm. weird because it was almost just off a high street with loads of shops and bars. And I know that those prisoners would have in the in the summer. I I don't know if they have proper windows and stuff, but the windows, I guess, would have been open more in the summer. And they would have been able to hear drunken revelers and everything outside, which would have really rubbed it in, I guess, for them. What kind of um, security classification was that though? Was it quite low or? I think it's changed over the years, but I think it's category A or it certainly was at some point and it holds prisoners on remand. So for all sorts of crimes, so they could be awaiting trial for murder or something a bit less serious, but it used to be a cat A prison. I'm sure. Mm. I'm not sure if it is now. And I once, I'm sure I've told this story before, but I once viewed a house that was right by the prison, which I would have loved. And there was a really high wall at the bottom of the garden, about 10, 12 foot high, ridiculously high, weirdly high. And I said, why, why is that wall so high and they said the prison is literally there oh my god so I would have loved that but it wasn't meant to be I couldn't afford it so so yeah I'm near Long Larton now which is maximum security prison it's in Evesham um I might do a little drive by later something to do isn't it why not so built in 2012 HMP Shots is a prison that holds male prisoners with maximum security classification I did have a little Google Maps search and it is in the middle of nowhere, it looks like. Not in the middle of nowhere, that's a lie, but in the middle of countryside, unlike you were saying next to a busy high street or anything or backing onto someone's garden. It doesn't look from Google Maps like that's the case. 
And HMP Shots exclusively holds prisoners that serving a term of five years or longer. It has two key sections. So there's the National Integration Centre, which is a national facility providing for prisoners who are at the start of sentences. And they have to be at the start of sentences that are at least eight to ten years. And then the second section is Kerr House, where accommodation is provided for prisoners that are nearing the end of sentences that are at least four years long. So it is pretty major there. So after cutting a hole in the fence of the sports field at around two o'clock in the afternoon, the wannabe escapee had rushed to the outer fence with a ladder that he'd made and a climbing rope. And the ladder had wooden grapples at either end. An alarm went off and he was seen on CCTV trying to scale the fence near to that sports field, but the outer fence. But in his high-vis jacket with many other inmates and staff nearby, he was easily apprehended. And when captured, prison officers found food, clothing and a toothbrush in his jacket pockets. Officers attended where the prisoner was just stood, immediately took him to the segregation unit and he was placed in solitary confinement for weeks and was banned from contacting his family and had all of his privileges removed. The question of why someone may wish to flee prison may appear to have a simple answer, but the man who was the focus of today's episode was actually described as realistic about his chances of escape and he did it for two reasons. Yes, to escape, that would be great, but also in an attempt to get publicity for his long-running campaign to clear his name. Michael Ross is serving a sentence for a murder conviction for a crime that took place on the 2nd of June in 1994. But in a letter published shortly after the prison escape attempt, um, Michael Ross said, I don't do these things without thought or with a careless attitude. Me taking action and doing what I've done would, I hope, make the public think, well, he's a bit different and he's trying to do something about it. I feel that says more about me taking action. After this recent prison escape attempt, I told the independent prisoner governors that I feel that they should be doing more to allow prisoners opportunities to bring focus onto their case if it's potentially a miscarriage of justice. This will be an interesting episode, won't it? Because I think, I know obviously you'll come to the case and we'll go back to 1994 and hear about what happened. I don't know anything about this. I don't recognise the name. But for me and our listeners and yourself, obviously, to talk about whether we think he is innocent or not, what do we think at the end of the episode? It's quite a major one, isn't it? Because ultimately, he is in prison and he was found guilty. So... Yeah, I I would love to hear your thoughts, Mark, towards the end. See if you've got the same opinion as me um, and definitely hear from our listeners as well. The campaign group Justice for Michael Ross insists that the verdict was a catastrophic miscarriage of justice that has destroyed a family, damaged a community and denied justice to the victim of a horrific murder. So this week, thanks to Leonard over on Instagram for bringing this case to our attention, we are going to look at Michael Ross. We're going to look at the murder of Shamsuddin Mahmood and we would love to hear from our listeners about whether they think that Ross is guilty or whether they feel as well that he has been a a victim of a miscarriage of justice. Before we begin, we are going to hear from this week's show sponsor, a company we've raved about many times before and you all will hear how happy Mark is to talk about it again. I'd forgotten that we've actually got it. So this this episode is sponsored by Wine52 and I'd forgotten about that. And I'm still a customer every single month. I get my three bottles through. Um, I'm a paying customer. absolutely love um, what they do. So yeah, we're sponsored by Wine52. And how does a free case of wine sound to you? I mean, who's going to say that doesn't sound amazing? 
We all know how much of a bookworm I am and I know a lot of our listeners are too and in my opinion a glass of wine and a good book could just go hand in hand and our friends at Wine52 are offering you a case of three beautiful bottles of wine from across the world so why not enjoy the lovely summer evenings we're having, settle down with your book and a glass of wine. All you need to do is go to wine52.com slash red. So that's the word wine and the numbers 52.com slash red and cover just £8.95 in postage and you'll get three bottles of wine delivered to your door. As I said, I've been a member of Wine52 for quite a while now. I absolutely love it. It's a real treat when that delivery comes. And Wine52 are all about showcasing the very best wine from a different region each and every month. From showcasing revered regions like Bordeaux and Emilia-Romagna to discovering exceptional wines from countries like Georgia and Bulgaria, this fantastic wine club takes you on an incredible odyssey through the wonderful world of wine. You have the choice of a mixed case, a red-only case if you're like me, or a white-only case if you are like Mark. And included with your package every month is Glug magazine which delves into each region's wine culture and you also get two tasty snacks as well after your free case yeah absolutely after your free case you'll join the monthly wine club like me but don't worry there's no minimum commitment so if it's not for you you can pause or cancel at any time and remember just go to wine52.com slash red to claim your free case of delicious wine today so it's the word wine and then the numbers 52.com slash red to claim your free case today for this week's episode, we are going to the Scottish Highlands and Islands, more specifically to the Orkney Islands. Since the 15th century, Orkney has been under Scottish rule. However, Orkney has its own sense of pride and identity. Locals speak a dialect that is actually a bit different to their Scottish neighbours. And the Orkney Isles lie just off the top of the Scottish coast and are made up of 70 islands, many of which are still completely uninhabited. So only 20 of those 70 islands is populated and there's about 20,000 residents in total. The only way to arrive or leave the islands is by plane or boat. I'm just having a look at them actually. Wow, that really is off the top of Scotland. It's kind of as far north as you could go, isn't it? Yeah, as you kind of head towards Norway. So you could probably sort of swim to Norway from there if you had some really good... If you were um, a dolphin. ...swimming gear. (laughs) Yeah, basically. But yeah, it's really north. Let's just say that. Beautiful. I know. Well, I've I've not been, but research in this case makes me want to take a trip there. I'm sure if if you're having a Google at the moment, you can see those rolling hills, dramatic shorelines, beautiful scenery, green as far as the eye can see. The Orkney Islands are described as a spot of particular beauty in Scotland's highlands and islands and it's this has made me want to go and visit. Yeah it's weird isn't it because the top and the bottom of the country so I always think similarities to Cornwall really uh, right up at, at the other end of the country the other extreme but yeah both equally as beautiful. So life on mainland the largest of Orkney's islands is both peaceful and idyllic and Kirkwall which is the largest settlement on mainland is no different. Kirkwall has a population of about 9,000 people. It was considered a safe and peaceful place to live and work. And the small town life was, and still is to this day, really enticing to people wanting to make it their home and, and embrace that real calm, peaceful, everyone knows everyone sort of life. In the April of 1994, a 26-year-old man called Shamsuddin Mahmood, so nicknamed Shamol, came back to Kirkwall to work as a waiter in the Mumataz Tandoori Indian restaurant. 
He'd previously worked there for nine months the year before and he loved his life on the island. Originally from Bangladesh, Shamol had finished his bachelor's degree in economics from the National University of Bangladesh, but had headed to London after a disagreement with friends. Back home was his girlfriend, their relationship was described as serious and she was studying to be a doctor, but Shamol just needed that change of scenery. After spending some time in London, where he'd come to join his brother, Shamal then spent some time in Southampton for a while, working as a waiter. And then he saw another waiter's job advertised in a newspaper, but all the time, this time it was all the way north on the Orkney Isles, and off he went to just go and explore. He loved it there. He did head back to London and his brother when winter arrived, but he knew that he would return to the island at some point because life on the island had really charmed him. It was a bit of a shock to his brother, who was sure that Shamal would be headed back to Bangladesh to marry his girlfriend at some point. But it appears that there might have been a lady in Kirkwall, so maybe another reason he was drawn back to the island. Love a bit of an intrigue. I don't know much about this lady, so just in case you think there's going to be a good romance, (laughs) I've not got that, I'm afraid. It would be nice to think that there was, and I know he had a girlfriend back in Bangladesh, but those kind of early relationships do often come to an end, and maybe he was meant to go to that island to find the one true love of his life and and they would have ended up together who knows i know but then i don't want to think about that being like his one true love because um i know what's going to happen next this is the only problem mark yeah shamal has been described as well-mannered and kind as well as friendly and hard-working and the time for him to return came really soon so early in 1994 shamal called the restaurant owner moina and asked if they had a summer job for him As this hardworking guy who was known as someone who was trustworthy, he very easily got his job back as a waiter there again. And off he headed. It was April. He'd literally gone back to London for a few months and then came back up again. And six weeks after his arrival back in Kirkwall, Shamal worked his first shift for the summer at the restaurant. He loved it and he was good at it too. But sadly, he wasn't to enjoy this life for very long. His second shift was on the 2nd of June in 1994 and it was a warm summer's evening. The sun was still out and I read in my research that it actually only sets at around 10pm at this time of year because it's so far north and there was a local businessman called Mr Glue and his family and they were heading to Mamata's restaurant so along with other locals too because it was quite busy it was a Thursday evening but it there were 15 customers sort of seated around the tables, um, couples, families etc. And at 7.15pm, a man in a balaclava entered the restaurant, dressed all in black. He strode directly across the restaurant, straight towards Shamal, and pointed a gun in his face. One witness described thinking it must have been a joke. Um, Another thought perhaps the man had come to rob the restaurant. And Mr Glue later said to the Daily Telegraph, I thought that it was some kind of joke. I thought it was going to be a water pistol spraying on the waiter's face. Unfortunately not. Unfortunately not indeed, because in front of the family being served and witnessed by shocked couples, parents, even children in the restaurant, Shamal was shot in the head. He was shot through his glasses from less than two feet away. The 9mm bullet passed through Shamshuddin's skull, killing him instantly. The shell casing hit the floor and behind him the bullet was lodged in the wall. The gunman calmly watched Shamal drop to the floor before turning and walking calmly back out of the restaurant. This is just... So shocking, isn't it? You just can't even imagine like being a witness to this, being there at the time. It's just in a matter of moments this has happened and he's gone. I just don't think you'd get your head around it if you witness this 
it's just something so alien that you would never in a million years expect to happen, not least somewhere like this, where everybody knows everybody and it's a peaceful community on this beautiful island and then something so brutal and sudden happens. I really think you would just go into shock. They would have all gone into shock and been in shock for some time. And I do actually, I do recall this now because I'm pretty sure this was featured in an episode of Crime Watch I guess in the 90s. I imagine it would have been. Because I remember at the time thinking, how weird is this? Yeah, and, you know, yes, there's low crime. There's not no crime. This was the first murder in 25 years on Orkney. So it's, yeah, nobody would be expecting this. The idea that people thought it was a joke or a prank or whatever, even if it's in bad taste, you can understand why you would feel that that was probably what it was going to be. So Mr. Glue and another diner from his table made chase, but they stopped after a while because of fear of their own lives, and the restaurant became this scene of absolute shock. The gunman had carried out this murder in a busy restaurant full of witnesses, but very few could provide an accurate description, and none of them had seen his face. Like I said, this was Orkney's first murder in 25 years, and the police had so many more questions than answers right from the beginning. This was a cold murder. The killer had struck with such confidence and it felt that it had surely been a professional, a hitman. But why Shamal? He was clearly the target, but why? The police were totally ill-equipped to deal with this case, so they preserved the scene and called on police from Inverness. The police from Inverness had to drive 150 miles, then take a 45-minute ferry before driving on through the night and arriving the next morning ready to start investigating. How crazy is that? I think that's fair in a way that the the local police have kind of said, do you know what, we're not even going to try. We'll we'll kind of do our best to preserve the scene, but we need to send for um, a better equipped force. They they totally did. To have the humility to do that was absolutely the right course of action. I just think it's incredible, isn't it? Like To get the police out there. It kind of reminded me a little bit of the film Wicker Man. Do you remember that from the, I think, the 80s? don't know i've heard of it i've never seen it he's like a police officer and he i can't remember where he goes to but it could be a scottish island it's been a long time since i watched it but there's just no there's no direct quick call the police and they're there sort of thing it's just but that film is that film is crazy that film is weird if you want a creepy weird film to watch watch that don't watch the wicker man the new one watch the original The police interviewed all the witnesses, but as is quite normal, there were conflicting statements in describing the gunman. So there was some key information that was agreed upon by most of the patrons of the restaurant. So so everyone agreed, first of all, that the shooter had been a man, that he had worn a balaclava and a dark coloured hooded jumper and that the hood had been pulled up. So the man's height was said to be five foot ten inches to six foot tall by some witnesses. Some thought he was a little bit shorter. A couple of the restaurant customers mentioned that he was hunched or had a distinctive stoop like a bodybuilder and that he had that kind of build. And also they all estimated 25 to 30 years old. So not an old person, a young guy um, and quite well built. A local man came forward and said that he had seen a burly man in the alley that led to Mamata's restaurant two hours before the murder. And the man had a physique of a bodybuilder, was about six foot tall. He was quite intimidating. Apparently, he'd kind of stared at the guy and he felt really uneasy with it all. And another witness saw a man wearing a hooded top hanging around outside of a public restroom near to Mamata's restaurant about 7pm. And he said that seeing the man wearing a long-sleeved hooded jumper in the summer had really piqued his suspicion. 
There were also witnesses who had seen a man in black clothes running away from the scene, but without his balaclava, and they said he had nutty brown hair. But that was all they had to go with from this point. I don't think that's too bad, though, to be fair, because these people are traumatised. I'm shocked they've been able to get any details at all, because I've never been in a situation like that, of course, but I feel that it would literally just be a blur to me. And that, yes, this figure of something that resembled the shape of a man had come in and done this, but I don't think I'd even be able to know whether this person was wearing a balaclava or not. I'd just be in such shock. And I just wanted to say, and I I don't want to go into um, any detail really, but this, this man has been shot through the head in this restaurant. The bullet has exited through the back of his skull and lodged into a wall. This would have been... I'm sort of trying to say it as sensitively as I can, but this would have been quite a brutal crime scene, wouldn't it? Yeah. In in terms of uh, what what happens then. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I remember being part of a really interesting psychological um, kind of just, and like not really an experiment, but just an example where um, we were put in a situation where we had to recall information from an event. And it was um, like a a video of a robbery or a, a video of some sort of crime. And then at the end, the person leading the session was asking the questions and they were like, what colour was the perpetrator's hat? What colour was his shoes? How tall was he? Blah, blah, blah. And most of us gave a colour for the hat and he hadn't even been wearing a hat. So it really does, it is interesting, isn't it? How the mind can be so easily led. I remember when we worked together, we had that sheet, didn't we? It was like, if something happens, you all go separate and you fill in your sheet of the evidence of like the description of the perpetrators. You do not talk to each other until you've done it because you can quite easily be led by someone else going, oh, did they do this or did they not? And then you start to doubt yourself. Yeah, I remember having at one place of work training from, I think, an ex-police officer who'd then set his own training company up. And I also remember having to recall uh a description of somebody and actually the best advice he gave was um go with some of the more bizarre things so the footwear is probably mm, one of the best people don't tend to change their footwear do they they don't change and it you can't change and what it size can be quite unique exactly so go with footwear or the color socks someone was wearing something that will really set them apart from the next person saying they had a dark jumper on or a dark shirt or average height average build isn't going to help but if you say that you recall they had red socks on that's going to be something in the immediate aftermath that might just identify that person pretty quickly Mm. psa for mark hashtag psa So the mainland was sealed off for three days. The police questioned everyone and checked every home on the whole of the island. And obviously with it being quite touristy, there were, uh, what's it called, like bed and breakfast, like sort of houses. So everywhere was searched. Anyone leaving or arriving by boat, ferry or plane was checked out. The police also searched the perimeter of the island, all of the bays, all of the inlets. They checked in with like um, local sailors and stuff to make sure that no boats were missing nothing out of the ordinary was found and I just can't begin to imagine the terror and the fear that the islanders must have felt knowing that this brazen killer was still at large and they're on the island not getting off but so's the killer. Yeah I think I think you've hit the nail on the head and this is a really unique situation because it it is a relatively small island and you can the beauty of that is that you can just 
close it off essentially and it's then the these real sort of Agatha Christie type vibes that you're getting seeping in that there is a killer amongst us oh my god it is so like an Agatha Christie isn't it yeah it is and in the 90s you wouldn't have on this island you probably wouldn't have locked your doors and windows this is now the summer it's probably a bit warmer and yeah I kind of think about the families that lived on the island going to bed that night or the next night all the night after that, having known and heard about what had happened, really holding on to their kids that bit tighter and securing their house that they'd perhaps not ever secured in their lives. And we're now having to do that because were they going to be next? Yeah. And actually, restaurant owner Moina Mia went into hiding under police guard with his wife and children in case it had been a race hate crime. And he said, we are really scared in case whoever did this comes after us as well, because they just didn't know why Shamal had been targeted. A racial motive does make a bit of sense, doesn't it? There's not going to be many people from Bangladesh on the island at this point working there. And there really wasn't anything else in Shamal's life to indicate a reason for his murder. A few theories were looked into, so perhaps some trouble had followed him from London or Southampton. Perhaps the woman he'd been seeing had a husband or a boyfriend and they'd got angry perhaps he was involved in a gang perhaps he was involved in drugs but no answers were found by the police there was just nothing that was tangible as to why so a racial motive kind of felt like the only thing that they could go with to be honest and there was one clue for the police as well that there was an altercation it happened the night before so an incident outside the restaurant where two or three men had been arguing with Shamal and they apparently had Scottish accents, so they weren't locals. Um, they were arguing with him at about 8.30 the, the night before he was shot. Witnesses in the restaurant heard one of the men say, I will shoot you. That's pretty major, but the police were never able to track down any of the men involved in this argument, this altercation. So here I am going to bring Michael Ross back into the story. So his prison escape attempt, the third escape attempt actually that he ever made, that took place in 2018 was this opportunity for him to try and highlight his campaign. In fact, discussions are taking place right now, which is why Leonard reminded me of this case to cover. Towards the end of last year, the group fighting to prove Ross's innocence submitted a 360-page dossier in an official complaint about Police Scotland's investigation of the case. And as recently as a few weeks ago, a series of key questions were released by Justice for Michael Ross, where they also alleged that a plausible lead was ignored by the police investigating the fatal shooting. Police Scotland confirmed that the complaint against the now defunct Northern Constabulary is still being assessed and ongoing, and they kind of declined to comment on those key questions. So it's really, really interesting. Um, I don't think that a prison escape is the best way to bring light to your cause if you want to make sure everyone knows you're innocent I'm gonna say it I'm gonna say it. I don't think trying to escape from prison is the best idea however I suppose it's how else are you going to make a bit of a fuss and get your name in the papers again yeah and he's got he's obviously got that group on the outside justice for Michael Ross campaigning for his innocence and his release and that's all well and good, but I suppose he's got limited control over what they're doing because he's stuck in prison and he's probably frustrated and he's probably just, yeah, it's just one way of just saying I, I still exist and I'm still in prison and I didn't do this 
And yeah, we need to get some answers. So I actually understand where, where he was coming from. I don't think there was an intention to actually get over the wall and run away. I think the intention was purely the publicity. I don't think there was much in, in it about freedom. I think it was, I, I accept I'm here. I'll play by the rules, but I want people to remember that I exist. I am here and I shouldn't be here. So what brought Michael Ross to the point where he was convicted of the shooting and Why do his supporters so firmly believe that he is innocent? I also wonder if by the end of this episode, me or you will have a firm opinion on this case as well, what we think actually happened or not. So the only genuine key bit of evidence that the police had was the bullet and its casing. They had clearly been the murder weapon. There's there's no doubt around that. And Kirkwall police were fortunate to have a really well-informed firearms expert on the the case. They had Constable Edmund Ross. He was tasked with identifying the bullet. So PC Ross had served in the military. He'd worked for the special branch, was an ex-army sniper. At some point in his career, he protected Prince Charles and Princess Diana. He was passionate about firearms. He had a number of guns. He took his teenage son shooting. He had a lot of knowledge. Part of his job was to confiscate illegal firearms and destroy them by sawing the weapons into small bits and throwing the parts into the sea. And so he was really a, a very a very good person to have on the team because they only had the bullet in its casing. Is that how they did things in Scotland back in the 80s and 90s though? This local PC, Bobby, would confiscate illegal firearms, saw them into a few bits and then just chuck them in the sea. Well, I mean, you're not going to be able to use them again, are you? I think that seems, I mean, if you just send them somewhere else, there's a chance they get intercepted. I think it's a great idea. (laughs) Don't like the littering in the sea part, but where else are you going to chuck them when you're on an island? I'm shocked about this. And it's also ringing some alarm bells that we have this guy connected to this case that is an expert in weaponry and may have access to all sorts of different guns that uh, can't necessarily be traced back to him. But I'm not going to go down that road. Uh, I'm sure he had nothing to do with this other than in a professional capacity. Oh, you just hold on to your wondering for a moment there, Mark. We'll get get into it. I will, yeah, I will. Okay. So PC Ross and the other officers confiscated all weapons on the island. They tested every single gun on Orkney, trying to find a match, but nothing came up. What they did realise within their research and investigations was that the bullet used was a really unusual one, but it was two months into the investigation before PC Ross told the investigation team he knew the bullet used in the shooting and he actually had a box of them in his home. So you can kind of hold on to your wondering for a little bit, Mark. I don't know if it's going to quite go where where you're thinking, but... So years before, an old friend from PC Ross's military days had given him some army army ammunition that after testing had been rejected for not being high enough quality. A handful of soldiers had taken the opportunity to pocket some of those boxes to take home with them. When PC Ross was asked who had given them to him, he said he thought maybe he picked them up at a shooting centre in Scotland or perhaps a local man in Orkney had given it to him. He kind of was a bit wishy-washy with it. He'd gone to his his supervisor and said, actually, I've just realised it's been two months, but I've got this ammunition myself. He just wanted to speak to the man first before implicating him, because obviously this could be an implication that this other person was involved. He said he had loads of guns and ammunition. The investigation had been so in-depth that he'd been distracted, and it was only when he remembered about the bullets in his possession that he realised the link. 
and his house was searched and the box was found, but it was still sealed. The full amount of 35 bullets was inside. Soon after he'd handed in the bullets, PC Ross then did give the name of the retired Royal Navy officer who had taken the bullets when he left service. This man was interviewed and he confirmed PC Ross's story. As the box that PC Ross had in his possession was sealed with all the bullets still there, he clearly hadn't had anything to do with Shamal's death. But it was later discovered that his friend had actually given him two boxes, the sealed one and another that had been opened, and was now missing. Ross had asked him to lie and not mention the opened box that had now mysteriously disappeared. So naughty. And so, in 1997, three years after the shooting, he was jailed for four years on charges of perverting the course of justice, and he actually lost his job as a police officer as a result of this um, lying and hiding evidence. Maybe on purpose, maybe he genuinely didn't remember for two months. He deserved that, though. You can't, in that in that role, integrity is of the utmost importance. You can't lie about stuff like this, and you can't lead the investigators down the wrong path of, well, it might be this guy, it might have been that guy that gave it to me. Then once he's been handed in and analysed and he's had the opportunity to talk to the guy, oh, actually, it was so-and-so that gave it. You can't control the investigation in that way. That's completely unfair and beyond naughty as far as I'm concerned. So... This has all happened, but let's get back to Michael Ross. His dad was PC Ross. He was one of the teenage sons that the police officer would take shooting. I'd like to point out here that it wasn't seen as weird that the Ross family loved firearms. They were a military family. Nobody thought their love of guns was excessive or strange. He, you know, the father would take his sons to the gun range. It was a family thing that they would go and do. He... That was just one of their passions. Nobody thought it was was that weird, just kind of making that point. Because I think to someone who's not around guns very often or who isn't of that kind of family, you might think that was really strange. But they had lots of guns, they had lots of weapons, they had lots of ammunition, but it wasn't it wasn't weird and it wasn't seen as weird and I don't think it's I don't think it still is by anybody really within the case. I think that's a that's a fair point to make. I'm yeah. more berating myself that I didn't see this um, twist in the tale coming and that uh, obviously they do share the same surname and I'd not, not picked up on that. I wondered so. if you were going to spot it or not. No, not at all, no. So obviously the lies around the bullets are obviously bad, but there was no evidence that PC Ross was the shooter. Obviously he was investigated. He, I can't find much about the rest of this side of things, but it was just never even a question. So he must have had a really good alibi. He must have been at work or something that is just irrefutable because he was never listed as a, a, a shooter or anything. However, the police discovered some disturbing material in 15-year-old Michael Ross's bedroom. So he was only 15 at this time when the shooting happened. Um, and he was and he was actually named the official suspect when PC Ross went to court for his perverting the course of justice charges so they kind of straight away latched onto michael ross so described as doodled nazi imagery notebooks that had a swastika and an ss symbol were found so he'd written his name ross with a swastika in the letters o and two s's written like the ss did like with lightning bolts on another page was a picture of the scottish flag with the words death to the english 
Further down the page, he'd written the words, Death Cures All, and he also had a black balaclava with the eyes and mouth cut out, like the same sort of placing as the shooter had worn. Already I'm like, well, this guy is definitely guilty then. Okay, there we go. You've you've made, yeah, that's it. I I try and and fully reserve judgment until the end. Yeah, yeah. But what possible reason could a 15-year-old have to murder a local waiter was he racist had he killed Shamal because of the color of his skin news reports from the side that believe his guilt often do call him a racist killer and they focus on these nazi elements to the story but there is discrepancy so a discrepancy was that at five foot seven he was shorter than the man that witnesses described he was also definitely not a bodybuilder he was 15 he's got the physique of a 15 year old like fair enough not like a podgy guy or anything like that but he's also not skinny but he's not a bodybuilder he just looks like reasonably fit young man um he was also 15 and when you look at photos of him as a 15 year old he looks like a 15 year old he doesn't you know sometimes people look older than they are he didn't look between 25 and 30 he wasn't a man And also the argument the night before the shooting involved men with Scottish accents, not locals. Michael Ross had, however, been seen acting strangely. So a mother and daughter came forward to say that they'd seen a young man wearing a balaclava and a dark coloured hooded jumper behaving strangely in Papdale Woods two weeks before the shooting. So Papdale Woods are located between the local secondary school and the school hostel where pupils from the Isles stayed during the week. And this guy was I don't know the right way to describe it, but basically if you imagine someone pretending to be in the military running from like tree to tree and ducking down and diving and hiding and playing, I guess, like playing armies, well, if you think of a child playing armies. Yeah. But sometimes this is a man, I think it goes, so it would make you feel really unnerved. Yeah. But sometimes I think it goes beyond play, particularly if we're talking about an adult or um, a teenager I think there is some people do have an obsession with the armed forces and pretending that they are part of that and living in their own imagination that that they are important. It's a way of. And I don't think he was necessarily pretending as well because I'm pretty sure I may be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure he's in the cadets, which I think he would have been as well because of his dad's background and the military family links. So I do think that. But it is really weird, and this mother and daughter were so unnerved by it. Even if he's practicing stuff from cadets, it's a bit worrying. No, he's a no. I'm I'm going to be careful what I say, but no, I think it's weird. Well, they did, and about three months after seeing the kid or the man in Papdale Woods, when they'd reported this to the police at the time, the police investigated. They were looking for this guy. They then came out of a cafe and saw someone come out of a bakery, and they were convinced it was the same person they saw in the woods. They told the police, "We've just seen him again." And the police then were able to get CCTV from outside the bakery and it was Michael Ross that they found on the tapes. At the time, he denied it was him. But later that year, his dad took him in and he did change his statement. He admitted it had been him in the woods. So his explanation was that he was waiting for another boy from school who'd been dating his ex-girlfriend and had become physically abusive towards her. So he had planned to beat the guy up and give him a bit of a scare. But this guy didn't show up and basically... Ross then changed out of his balaclava and his hoodie, went back to his grandma's house where he'd left his bicycle. That was kind of his version of the story. He didn't have any weapons on him at the time. He was just waiting in the woods where kids would walk through to jump this guy. 
He also denied being the killer. He gave friends as alibis for his whereabouts on the night of the 2nd of June, saying that he'd seen certain friends and he'd been talking to them at at their house. But the police were absolutely certain that Michael Ross was the killer and they kind of really set about verifying these statements. I mean, this whole thing, these sort of escapades in those local woods doesn't, I suppose, really have a lot to do with whether he's guilty or not, because my immediate thought was, had he gone up to these woods with um, a weapon to practice uh, shooting, so target practice, but if no weapons were found on him, then I think it's unlikely it was to do with that. So he probably was just messing around in the woods. And he didn't need target practice, because he's can go up to the gun well, range at it. any given moment, yeah. Good point, yeah. So, yeah, I think it kind of tells you a little bit about his character, maybe a bit of a loner, um, having to take himself off into his own world and, you know, in his head prepare himself for this war that he wants to wage against English people, coming into what he sees as his domain, his island. But, yeah, I'm not sure that points towards his guilt solely. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you can only kind of... They only had his word to go along with it. But actually, the story about him behaving really strangely in Papda Wood didn't really sit true with the police because the boy he named that he'd been waiting for, whilst that name that he gave was a real student, this this kid had been a real student, he'd actually left the area several months before, so he wasn't at the school anymore. And then also with Ross's alibi for the night of the shooting, where he said that he'd cycled around papdale east which was an area and talked to two of his friends the friends couldn't exactly confirm talking to him and they couldn't confirm that they had spoken to him on thursday the 2nd of june and on december the 6th 1994 whilst at school the now 16 year old michael ross was detained in connection with the murder when police told him that his friends couldn't fully corroborate his whereabouts michael ross suggested that the police ask his friend's brother who might have seen him at the time and he said his friend was cutting the grass at a house that wasn't his house. So if Michael Ross had not been there, how would he kind of know this? These were elements that he gave that were true. And I also do feel a bit sorry for his, him here because I don't know if I could six months after something happened, tell you whether or not I spoke to somebody, especially as a 15 year old, when you hang out with your friends and the days get blurred. And and I, I, I'm a sort of strong believer in whether you've got an alibi or not. It doesn't necessarily point towards guilt or innocence. Alibis can be fabricated. And a lot of the time, I just wouldn't have an alibi. I'd just be, well, I was, I don't know, I can't remember what I was doing, or I was just sat at home watching TV. Um, yeah, I, I'd really struggle a lot of the time to have independent people potentially yeah. verifying where I was at a certain time. And I'd need those people to do that because I wouldn't fucking remember. Yeah, I work from home on the day, a lot of the time on my own. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd struggle, I think, a lot of the time to come up with an alibi. That wouldn't mean I'm guilty, though. No. And this was kind of it. After questioning, he was allowed to go home. The police did not have enough evidence to charge him whatsoever. Acting weird in the woods two weeks before someone gets shot doesn't really mean anything. It's just a weird link. They also did get Michael Ross to take part in a lineup. So there were three witnesses who had seen the gunman fleeing and they got them to come in and, and look at these people in a lineup and none of them picked him. And when questioned, they said that they felt the gunman was older than the, than the 16-year-old stood in front of them. Neighbours and friends of the Ross family were on Michael's side. No one could believe that this young man was guilty. They strongly felt that 
older PC Ross and young Michael Ross were both innocent. But in this small town, rumours spread rapidly around Orkney about who was responsible for the murder. Some others did feel that Michael was definitely the killer and this was a father protecting his son. But then supporters of Ross's said, why would PC Eddie tell investigators about the bullets if it could implicate him in the murder? And even worse, it would implicate his own son. Why would he not just hide that he'd even had the bullets and just Which not bring them to done. the table? Which he so could have done. He'd already done it for two months. Yeah, unless he thought that it was going to come out at some point. But he could have destroyed them. I don't know. Yeah, the, that yeah. there is a big question if mark if around that. his job is to go tip stuff into the sea, you would just go tip them into the sea, wouldn't you? Yeah. And just never and mention it again. And then you've never had them. Yeah. Yeah. The supporters of the Ross family were adamant the police had no other avenues to investigate. And so they were felt they kind of went on this witch hunt for the 15-year-old boy. And another element they really focused on was that if he did in fact commit the murder, as a young boy, how would he have been able to keep his composure after the event? He never broke down, he never changed his behaviour, there was nothing unusual about him leading up to or after the fact. And I think that's a really interesting point because quite often we see, don't we, that somebody's able to kind of keep it together for a short while but then they'll blurt it out or they'll talk about it or they'll become different they'll start being withdrawn they'll start acting erratic this is a 15 year old as well so it's quite a big thing to be able to hide that whole side of your personality if you are a cold-blooded murderer and it's easy to say oh someone that's done this is a psychopath unable to feel that kind of emotion and able to just compartmentalize it but most people that kill even in this way in this cold-blooded brutal manner are not psychopaths they are normal people they have their own agenda and they've gone out and done something that most of us can't do but it doesn't mean they're a psychopath and quite often there is a change in behavior in the vast majority of of killers or rapists or anybody that is out committing a, an horrific crime that does generally get noticed by their loved ones, their family, their partner, yeah, their friends, exactly. whoever. They There is a change in demeanour usually. So I think the fact that there that wasn't observed, again, does point towards innocence here, potentially. It's really fascinating, isn't it? Because hearing you react to this is exactly how I've been through researching and writing this. Because I have flitted from guilty and not guilty, guilty, not guilty so many times. Um, And I think I can kind of fairly share that I'm more on the side of innocent now from researching this, but I'm still not 100%. And we'll see, see how you are by the end of the episode. So after two years in prison, Eddie Ross, so PC Ross, but not PC anymore, Eddie Ross was released. Returned to Orkney, he found a job as an undertaker. Michael Ross remained free. There was no evidence against him. Michael Ross went on to build a life for himself. He went into the Black Watch Regiment. He rose to the rank of sergeant. He was taken in as a military combat sniper. He got married. He had two daughters. He's been described as well-liked and popular in his regiment, just as he'd been at school and by his neighbours and friends in Orkney. He'd always been well-liked and popular. He received a mention in dispatches for bravery in Iraq where he saw heavy combat and he lost close friends. On a similar kind of note to his dad with the then Prince Charles, in his role as a soldier, Michael actually once guarded the Queen at Balmoral during her summer break. So he became a a decorated war hero. He was excelling in the military. By 2006, at the age of 26, he was 
happy, settled. He had a wife and two daughters. They were living in Inverness and he'd really made this life for himself. But that year, the case was suddenly reopened when an anonymous letter was handed in to Kirkwall Police Station. So I'm going to read the letter as it was written. It's quite long, so I do apologise, but I think it's interesting to kind of hear the whole thing. So the letter read, This is a true letter. I promise that I saw the person who killed the Indian waiter. I saw his face in full and the handgun. It was in the toilets at Kiln Corner. I have lived long enough with the guilt of not coming forward. The person was approximately 15 years plus, white and had a balaclava on his head, but still not turned down. The colour was either dark blue or black, had dark clothing. He came out of a cubicle, but went back in quick when he saw me. I looked over and saw his face in full. The handgun was natural polished metal or silver and like a big Beretta. This may sound stupid, but the way he held a handgun looked like he had handled a firearm before. I just don't know what to do. I'm a worried, sick witness. And just as like a note, the Kiln Corner public toilets were literally across the road from Mamata's restaurant, so it was it was really close. It do, it does make sense that the killer would want a moment beforehand, before sort of arriving at the intended destination, to just gather his thoughts for a moment somewhere and, and put I don't know, the, just cover, like put his cover on his face and everything. Yeah, to put that down. Yeah. So uh, this does sound legitimate to me. Yeah. So whilst the letter was meant to be anonymous, it kind of made me laugh a little bit. This is a really small community. So the police admin clerk who received the letter recognised the man who brought it in and went and said, so-and-so's just handed in this letter, which I thought was brilliant. It's supposed to be an anonymous letter, and he's just turned up. So Yeah, life of, of living on found, mainland, yeah. Exactly. They went and found this man, and when they found him, he said he did want to make a statement. So William Grant um, was the guy, and he was a local, and in his statement, he described the young boy he had met coming out of the public toilets on the night of the murder, saying he was a young boy with a balaclava and a gun. He had carried this information with him since the night had ha- um, that he'd kind of witnessed it, too afraid to come forward, but said that the guilt had become too much. The boy he saw was 15-year-old Michael Ross, is what he said. And in addition to this statement about seeing Michael Ross with the balaclava and a handgun on the night of the murder, he also recalled seeing Michael and a friend outside of Mamata's restaurant sometime in May, so the month before, shouting racist abuse and threats. However, no other witnesses or restaurant staff could corroborate that story, but he also said that he remembered that too. When he was asked why he had waited so long to say something... Grant explained that there were so many people who were convinced of Ross's innocence, he didn't want to go against the other locals. And actually, indeed, once he'd made his statement, he was subjected to threats and abuse. It would have been quite a lot to come forward, wouldn't it? Whether whether you think his statement is true or not, coming forward with this is quite major. It does add credence to what he's saying. That Because I was thinking, well, why wouldn't he have come out with this at the time? I'm not sure I'd buy that he wouldn't have felt comfortable or was too scared. Yeah, he was scared of having his reputation damaged and of people falling out with him. Um, so I do, bu- so I do buy the, the yeah. motivation. Yeah, but then it's has this guy got a grudge against the Ross family? Is that the issue here? Do we know that for a fact or not? Probably hasn't. But is there an ulterior motive of coming forward and saying that actually, yes, you know, this is the guy and pinning it on him? Yeah, it's so fascinating. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a post on social media that has a link to this the justice pages for Michael Ross where they look in loads of detail about 
points to do with this case because there is too much for me to go through in one episode. There are so many things that are back and forth and questions that I think are just good questions to ask. Some of them you can answer differently. I don't know. So these are three questions that they ask about this letter. And I thought these were very fascinating to kind of bring to the table. So the terminology used in this letter, so the word handgun was used three times and firearm used once. They say, how likely is it that a normal person would use those terms to describe what most ordinary people would describe as a gun? I kind of get the point there. But equally, I don't think it's that weird to say handgun or firearm. I don't think it's that unusual. And if you've been around people and you know the difference, you would maybe want to make it clear this wasn't a shotgun, it was a handgun. So maybe. Yeah, I think there would have been quite a prevalence of shotguns on this island. Um, So I think that person is just making the distinction between what, you know, this wasn't a shotgun. It wasn't a sawn-off shotgun. It was just a handgun. It fitted in his hand. It was a handgun. So I don't, I'm not reading anything into this, the use of that language at all. Firearm, I don't know, that's less common, less commonly used. Sometimes I use that and I'm aware that it's not as commonly used. Uh, but that was only mentioned once. So I don't and know. And I will just, um, I'll just mention to our listeners that I kept accidentally saying fire alarm earlier because my brain just you did, could yeah. not get the word firearm out. So it's clearly not a word that I would use very often in my normal no. speaking, but that doesn't mean it's not a normal word to use. Um, during Mr. Grant's trial testimony, he kind of didn't give any indication of prior knowledge of guns or shooting. So they say, would he really have been able to identify the make of a handgun to be a big Beretta? But I think you might just know that from films. I don't think that's too unusual to say. It would be different if he if he gave the type of gun, but he said it was like yeah. a big Beretta. I'd add a bit more value to this, but I don't know the age of this guy. He might be in his 70s. He might have watched enough Westerns and films and lived a life long enough to know what a Beretta is and that this was like a Beretta. Um, but I wouldn't know what Beretta is. So I'd add a bit more value to uh, questioning that, but not much. Mm -hmm. And then their final kind of question around this is that final statement in the letter is a very definite judgment based on a sighting that only lasted a matter of seconds. So saying the way he held a handgun looked like he had handled a firearm before, that's that's quite a thing to kind of state. So they're saying, well, really, how... How can you tell that? How can you make that judgment when you literally saw somebody for a split second and then they went back into a cubicle? Mm, I don't know. I, I think, think that's there's, I think, interesting. I, I, personally, I don't because I think if I held a, a handgun or a firearm, I would be really lacking in confidence, really wary of it scared of it really and not holding it confidently so he probably just means that this guy wasn't showing any of those signs that he was holding it and confidently. when we think back about um Carlton Alvaranga and I cannot remember the other guy's name oh my gosh I feel awful for not remembering his name but the two young guys in Salford who were forced to go into the pub and shoot people and they were given yeah. like a hit and they had to go in and they had to shoot they came in holding their guns to the side like as if it was a film and unable to shoot them like they clearly didn't know what they were doing was his name daniel i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to have a look because i feel awful that i can't remember his name um but then but the interesting thing is they wouldn't have been used it? to they... 
They wouldn't have been used to handling firearms, but they would have looked the part going into that pub, that shameless style pub on that estate, holding it to the side like how they'd seen in films. So they're holding it mm. confidently. It just doesn't really work in practice. So they weren't aware Richard of Austin that. Richard Austin was the other, the other young guy, Richard Austin. But yeah, I don't know. I, it's interesting, but I've gone shooting quite a lot. I... I'm quite what? aware of what. Yeah, I love. Sh- I've gone. I I love shotguns. Like it's it's quite. I find Bethan, it quite an interesting thing to do. This is the thing. Like you, you didn't know that about me. Uh, if I was hand, if I was holding a gun, I feel like I would probably look a lot more comfortable holding a gun than you would. Even though I definitely wow. wouldn't be comfortable with a handgun because I've never shot handguns before. But I've got maybe that slightly more awareness of like how you hold things and not pointing at people so, if you're walking around, even if they're not loaded and stuff. But I don't know, like you probably. I'm really think that shocked. Of me, I cannot but... believe that. No, I'd never think that in a million years, Bethan. I'm now Isn't picturing that fun? you. Oh, I like that. In I'll a, find a flowery. Of me. In a flowery dress with your sunnies on, holding a shotgun. <laughs> what a bizarre thought. There we go. Five years into the show and you're learning something new about me there, Mark. Mm, I'm worried. <laughs> you don't need to be worried. So police felt that they finally had enough evidence with this letter that they could charge Michael Ross with the murder of Shamal back in 1994 they thought this letter was enough to bring it to the table this kind of tied everything together and the trial was held in glasgow's high court in 2008 so there was no forensic evidence there was no murder weapon but witnesses began to come forward saying that ross had made racist comments such as all immigrants should be killed he'd even apparently said blacks should be shot and have a gun put to their head Now, these statements then came as a shock to people who had served with Ross. They struggled to see him as even slightly racist. He'd been friends with people of many different nationalities. One of his his soldiers that he had served with who had died was black and somebody testified that he had sobbed his heart out when his friend died. They were kind of like, he wasn't racist in the slightest. But then we have these notebooks that were found in his bedroom when his bedroom was searched at the age of 15, 16. So... With Nazi commentary. How much of that was really like how much of that was stupid teenage stuff where you've learned about the Nazis and you've put some Mm. stuff into your name, but it doesn't mean you're a Nazi sympathizer. It's I don't don't think think it's right and I think it's creepy and weird, but I went to school with somebody and I remember in one of her exam papers she drew on the back of it some woman being hanged. And it was like a a picture of this dead body. And then the teachers had to have a word with her to see if she was okay. Like, teenagers are weird. Teenagers are weird. But, yeah, I don't know. Most teenagers wouldn't display any signs that they are Nazi sympathisers. So I I, I have no doubt that he... I don't think he was racist. I think he'd changed. But I think he may have been racist as a teenager. Might have been influenced. I'm not going to say by who, but by certain people and role models may have influenced him in that way. And then as an adult, he was able to make his own own mind up on his outlook at the world. So I I think, yeah, possibly he was a racist as a teenager at that time. And we've got a number of people coming forward to corroborate that fact. It's interesting, isn't it? Because yes, he's now 26. He's served in the army. Maybe some of those things that he did think had been kind of like stamped out of him because you can't, be that way as a grown adult maybe he had believed those things as a 
as a youngster. He, yeah, he he might have never interacted with a person of colour in a social situation up until the point where he goes in the army and has colleagues who are people of colour and then sees them for the real people that they are, not this kind of warped ideology that he has in his head. And the only target of his frustration, if he, if he was a racist in his teenage years, the only target would, of course, be the local Indian restaurant on this island of only 9,000 inhabitants. There probably weren't many people of, of colour, persons of colour on that island. So, I yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to to disbelieve that he was a racist as a, that he wasn't a racist as a teenager i i think he just managed to form his own opinions by this time by 26 a wife two kids he'd uh you know seen the world and changed his mind on the outlook that he had previously so i i disagree a little bit because i think that what he'd written was like death to the english and death cures all Neither of those things are inherently racist against somebody who's a person of colour. That's that's possibly a kind of him trying to find his roots as someone from the Orkney Isles rather than being seen as Scottish or maybe he's seeing that Scotland should, he felt like Scotland should be separate or I don't know. I mean, we could we could talk about it all day, but and we won't. But it does it does kind of say to me that there is uh, there is a desire to protect this island from outside inhabitants, English people, maybe people of colour, maybe people from other countries other than England. So the hallmarks are there for a racist, but I'm not saying that definitively yeah. he was. We're never going to know, are we? No, exactly. But and I think this is, is the whole point. The whole this whole case is yeah. we just don't we don't know and. No. He's still maintaining his innocence. So at the trial, the defence called in many people to testify of Ross's solid and respected service in the military as kind of testament to his good character. No, very few of his soldiers believed him, like follow soldiers believed him guilty of the murder. And a forensic psychologist testifying to the defence kind of said at the time of the murder, he was an immature 15 year old. But witnesses describe this murderer as deliberate, unemotional, inexperienced and like a professional. Evidence from their accounts mm. is that this wasn't a random act of racial aggravation, but it was a targeted act of violence against a specific person. If you were really going to just target people of colour, would you not just shoot the restaurant in general? Or or why would you walk straight to him, stand at, you know in mm. front of him and shoot him at close blank range? and this psychologist went on to say about how a 15-year-old boy is unlikely to fit the witness's description unless he is exceptionally psychopathic and has had experience of executing human beings. But this wasn't Michael Ross. Um, he was, you know, and unless we, unless there is something we don't know and that people didn't know where he just had this one moment where he completely switched off, he'd never shown any signs that that was, that was a part of his personality at all. My only other concern is that he then joins the army, goes on to become a decorated soldier, having served, I think you said, in Iraq. So this could be a cold-blooded killer that has now managed to get his fix in adulthood, early adulthood, through Mm. a more more legitimate means. I don't personally think they're legitimate means. That's my own 
belief but um but what society would would kind of uh, condone that yeah legally yeah. yep so he can go out basically and kill people and actually we've heard of all sorts of horrible stories where british soldiers actually have gone out to countries afghanistan iraq and tortured locals in those places they've not just killed because they've they've had to as part of an act of war they've committed war crimes that, that are outside all of the kind of laws around war so either way he might have been able to go out there and and execute people willy-nilly as he wanted to not within the letter of the law or equally within the letter of the law but to still get that psychotic fix and then he's apprehended at 26 he's still in the army he's risen up the ranks to sergeant you know that's quite feel like that's quite high but it's a valid Mm. it's a valid suggestion to make it's a discussion point isn't it you know i think our listeners will want to pick up on that as well yeah what what do we all think and then once at the trial, Grant was really wishy-washy about whether or not it was definitely Michael Ross that he'd seen. Um, you know, being questioned on the stand is major. So mm. you're not going to necessarily come across in in the best way. But basically, at his police interviews, he had said instantly, I saw Michael Ross. I knew Michael Ross. I had seen him. But the trial during cross-examination they asked the question if you did see someone in the toilets are you saying you didn't know who that was and he kind of paused and went no and then they said well what are you saying and he said i'm not sure really so over the 12 years have there been many stories about this murder yes and when you told the police that the person you saw was michael ross may it be that you have allowed yourself to be influenced by what you had seen read or heard and he actually said very possibly yes They said, it was not Michael Ross that you saw that night. Would that be right? And he said, I am not sure. Maybe it could be right. They said, it is important for everybody. Could it be right? And he then said, I don't know what to say. It very possibly wasn't Michael Ross. So even at at trial then, he he also later said, it was quite a while later that the name Michael Ross came to him. Days, maybe weeks. He suddenly realised the person he saw in the toilets was Michael Ross. But when he spoke to the police, then he said, well, I knew immediately it was Michael Ross. So he was kind of back and forth a little bit. I do think, though, any witness under cross-examination on the witness stand, um, probably not protected in any way back then uh, in terms of screens or anything. So he's there facing the defendant. It's hard. I think it's really hard to have real conviction and to have all those years later not had a bit of doubt creep in, even though you were convinced at the time. So I I think that's basically to do with being cross-examined. Although, yeah, there probably is a tiny bit of him that could be wrong, but I I think he he knows he's right. He's just allowed himself to falter a little bit under cross-examination, which is quite normal. So I I feel like it, you know, this wasn't him, but the jury, however, felt differently. And Michael Ross was sentenced to a minimum of 25 years in prison. The judge told him at sentencing this was a vicious, evil, unprovoked murder of a defenceless man. And then basically, yeah, he was sentenced. He was going to go down, but he wasn't he wasn't willing to kind of be taken to jail. As soon as the verdict was delivered, he jumped over the dock and made a run for it. This was the first of his attempts to escape. So court guards managed to apprehend him near the exit. He was tackled and taken into custody. As he was taken down to cells, it was discovered that whilst he was on bail awaiting trial, he'd arranged to hire a car, have it parked at a supermarket not far from the court, and in it there were guns, ammunition, knives and camouflage gear, along with camping equipment and money, all stashed in the boots. So he was, you know, he really didn't want to go down for this and he was willing to flee. 
I think as a soldier, though, I can understand a little bit about like the self-preservation and the fact that he could do all that. Mm. But yeah, so I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to go with what do you think, Mark, from the very little that I've really been able to bring to the table, but hopefully the key elements to this. And listeners, please, please, what do you think? Would you, if it was right now and we're on a trial and we're on the jury, would you say he's guilty or innocent? Yeah, please let us know in all the usual ways for what it's worth. I need worth. to know yours, I'm, Mark. I need to know yours, yeah, Mark. I'm, what do you reckon? I think, to be honest, I mean, you've done a, obviously a real deep dive into this. and you'll Or do you want to do at, more reading? <laughs> I, I think I probably do want to look into it a bit more in terms of the Justice for Michael Ross organisation or whatever they call themselves. Mm. Um, I'd, I'd like to look at that, but I think on the face of it, having listened to that, I think he's probably guilty. Um, I, think he, I think there were racist motives. I think he became a different person in adulthood, formed his own beliefs when he was away from, you know, that small community, formed his own beliefs and um, wasn't racist then. However, this still could have been a psychotic killer getting away with killing people in a more legitimate setting. So I think he probably is guilty, but what the fuck mm. do I know? See, I'm I just think like he's anybody innocent, else. But my issue with all of this is these bullets were quite rare and they were from like a weird like one time thing and his dad just so happened to have some i just find that a very weird coincidence so whilst over the, overall i'm like 99% sure that he's innocent because of really just i just don't feel like it was him the fact that his dad had those bullets in the house and they went missing on an island where no other killer's ever been caught or apprehended and the bullets were never found anywhere else that's just so weird to me so that's what gives me that tiny element of doubt. Mm. Fascinating. Thank you, everyone, for, for joining us this week. And please, please do share your your thoughts. And if you want to know more, um, if you feel like he is innocent and you want to know more about the campaigns and what people are looking into, um, obviously I'll be sharing some links on social media and getting a bit of a discussion going around this. What I'll do is I'll set up a poll on Patreon. So if you're a Patreon supporter of the show, uh, you'll be able to vote whether you think guilty or innocent. And we can have a discussion underneath that poll. Um, if you would yes, like to support us on idea. Patreon, if you're able to support us on one, two and gain access to all of the different benefits that we offer over there, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeing red podcast. And if you want your free case of wine, just head to wine 52. So that's the word wine, the numbers 52.com slash red, and you'll get your free case of three bottles of wine. Uh, just cover £8.95 for postage. We'll see you next week, guys. Goodbye. We'll see you then. Bye.
Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Romball and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.